Hello, my name is Michael Albert, and I'm the host of the podcast that's titled Revolution Z. It's a little hard to believe, but this is our 200th episode, and it continues presenting chapters from the book No Bosses, now at the end, and this time assessing the origins, history, and prospects of the vision called participatory economics. So this No Bosses episode begins with two quotations, just like the others. First, we have one from Maya Angelou. You may encounter many defeats, but you must not be defeated. And second, we have Langston Hughes. Listen, Revolution, we're buddies. See, together, we can take everything. And so we begin. Books are not very interactive. Someone writes, someone reads. There is not much dialogue. Perhaps I can improve that a little by here answering some questions I have received at talks or personal exchanges as if we were personally chatting. I interject. Yes, I know. This is in some sense me interviewing myself. The interviewer is biased, you might say. Well, yes, the interviewer is biased, but it also means the interviewer knows every nook and cranny of the interviewee's views, as well as having heard the best questions others have asked. So, the chapter resumes. Question 1. Doesn't proposing social vision overstep our possible knowledge? Shouldn't social vision emerge from broad constituencies with lots of experience? Blueprint-like details of a future society are unattainable knowledge. To even try for a blueprint would be useless, pointless, and inappropriate. A blueprint is beyond our means. More important, future details are for people in the future to decide. At most, now offering possible texture beyond basic essentials to make a vision more accessible and understandable seems reasonable if such examples are acknowledged to be only possibilities. And I agree that to be insightful, social vision should incorporate the ideas of many people with much experience. When small groups propose new vision, their aim should therefore be that larger groups improve their proposals. But does that mean it is too soon to seek vision? I don't think so. We have centuries of highly relevant experiences to consult. If not now, when? I interject. One person who raised the above criticism has been Noam Chomsky. Question 2. But won't advocating vision close possibilities? Won't we advocate what we propose so tenaciously that we miss new insights? I agree that this can happen. Inflexible advocacy would be horribly damaging. But the solution to inflexible vision isn't no vision at all, just as the solution to unhealthy food isn't no food at all. We need flexible learning-oriented vision. More generally, I believe sectarian irrelevance afflicts us mostly when we feel that to be open and flexible denies our integrity. In contrast, I believe we best avoid sectarianism when we recognize that to be open and flexible enlarges our integrity. It follows that our priority should be to improve our views, not to reflexively defend them. We should realize that finding and fixing weaknesses is more constructive than robotically preserving against change. I interject. Andrei Grubacek was one of those who asked about vision and sectarianism. Back to the chapter. Question 3. But why economics? What about everything else? Doesn't the pursuit of economic vision slight the rest? Are you merely a mechanical Marxist after all? Surely, we can agree that we need economic hope, orientation, and direction. 
Your question highlights that we also need political, cultural, family and kinship, ecological and international hope, orientation and vision. Well, I agree. But it seems to me that to pursue economic vision while trying to promote other vision does not slight other vision any more than the reverse. If all pursuers of vision take account of their efforts' implications for other pursuers of vision, surely we can intersect and mutually enforce our visions and our actions so they work together for the benefit of all. The Marxist tradition that you mentioned has had many virtues, but it also has had many very serious debits. One debit that you allude to is that it has often been economistic, elevating the importance of economics above all else. Another debit is that it has rarely taken seriously the need for vision. And a third, and for this book perhaps the most critical debit, is that Marxism has most often obscured or literally denied the existence of a class between labor and capital that can become a new ruling class in what we call coordinator economies. And so the source for the above question, I have mostly had feminists ask me the, that question. Question four, what's so bad about capitalism? I am tempted to say, let me count the ways, but to be comprehensive would take far too long. How about capitalism produces Herculean disparities of income and wealth and engenders antisociality instead of solidarity and mutual aid? Capitalism elevates authority rather than reason, and it celebrates obedience rather than self-management. Capitalism produces isolation and alienation rather than mutuality and respect. We get war rather than peace. We get mansions above and cardboard houses below. Capitalism commercializes everything until nothing remains sacred. Capitalist market madness reduces love, comradeship, artistry, and dignity to profit opportunities. Everything is commercialized. Our limbs are smashed, our minds are hobbled. Capitalism is a thug's economy, a heartless economy, a base, vile, and largely boring economy. Capitalism mocks equity, rewards injustice, enshrines greed, and worships accumulation. Capitalism endlessly embalms spiritual and physical corpses. I interject. Who has asked why we need to reject capitalism? Perhaps it says something about what audiences I speak to, or about the times, but no one has. I included it here because, well, why not? Question 5. But why not advocate an economic vision we already have? Why not advocate social democracy? I agree that it would be easier to advocate a familiar model, but social democracy is capitalism with workers and what I call coordinators made somewhat more powerful. And yes, certainly realigning bargaining power at the expense of owners can temper some of the worst flaws of capitalism. Realigning bargaining power can also be part of a trajectory of changes toward a new economy. But realigning bargaining power can't alone eliminate capitalism's defining flaws. And those flaws, even reduced in impact, remain quite horrible. Social democracy doesn't arrive at entirely new relations, and for that reason, its modest gains are revoked whenever capitalists regain full power. Unless we desire only stopgap reductions of contemporary horrors, we shouldn't advocate social democracy as our ultimate goal. We can certainly favor various short-run social democratic aims, as anyone sentient and caring ought to, but we should talk about them and organize for them as parts of winning a fully new economy, not as final ends in themselves. I interject. 
The above question comes from exchanges with, yes, social democrats. Question six. Okay, then why not socialism? The problem with adopting socialism as a vision is that the label is quite vague. Does socialism mean a good economy, a classless economy, an economy with justice and equity, an economy with self-management? If it means those things, that's fine. I want those gains, of course. But I fear that using the label socialism can confuse people, because every societal instance of socialism that has ever existed, and virtually every formulation of socialism carefully proposed as a vision, has had attributes that at best fall massively short of our sought virtues, and at worst resemble massive dungeons. In actual practice, socialism has always meant public or state ownership of productive property, plus corporate divisions of labor, plus income for power or at best for output, plus allocation by class-propelling, personality-perverting markets, or by authoritative central planning. Few who propose socialism have significantly deviated from these features. Socialism, as it has been specified, has most often been a class-divided economy with material and influential subordination for most of its actors. Some central ills of capitalism have certainly been reduced or even transcended, but new flaws have emerged and other familiar flaws have been aggravated. A coordinator class of empowered actors has repeatedly risen to ruling status. Some socialists reply, Wait a minute. What we advocate is a new socialism. We call what we favor, which is also what you favor, participatory socialism. I respond, if you agree that market central planning, a corporate division of labor, and remuneration for output all violate essential aims, and if you instead favor participatory self-managing alternatives, then we agree on substance, and I would only add that I still doubt that it is useful to use a term that needlessly confuses not just the rich, but also working people. And then came Bernie Sanders, AOC, and others. And suddenly, the label socialism was somewhat retrieved from meaning statist, coordinator class ruled models. Is the break that Sanders initiated sufficiently large that advocates of a new economic vision can call it green socialism, or eco socialism, or libertarian socialism, or participatory socialism, and not have those who hear them confuse what they are proposing with something they rightly reject? Maybe, but I admit I still have doubts. I interject. The above question has come not only from audience members, for example, but from various friends and allies, and from myself to myself as well. Question 7. But then why not anarchism? Why do we need a new system with a new name, participatory economics? This new system still has wages, so it is wage slavery. It still has exchange, so it is market-driven. Anarchism is better. I answer, indeed I have answered many, many times, anarchism is fine with me when it means people managing their own lives, enjoying classlessness, ending wage slavery and market competition, and reducing hierarchy to a minimum. But beyond those wonderful aspirations, I think anarchism proposes no system of institutions to accomplish production, consumption, and allocation in anti-authoritarian ways. The second part of your question perhaps indicates why. Wage slavery is people selling their ability to do work for some time period to owners or some other elite constituency who then use their control over that period to try and get as much output from the workers as they can. That simply does not exist in participatory economics. 
participatory workers work, so that much is true. They contribute to the social product, that is also true. And they get income for their efforts, also true. But they collectively determine their work and the social product. They receive claims on the social product, but their share is allotted according to one norm for all, duration, intensity, and onerousness of socially valued work. Exchange happens in every economy. Exchange in central planning is regimented. Orders given, orders taken. Exchange in markets is competitive. You fleece me or I fleece you. Market prices reflect bargaining power. Market exchange is an alienated, misdirected process. In contrast, exchange in participatory economics is cooperatively negotiated. We produce together. We exchange to mutual benefit. Prices reflect individual, social, and ecological costs and benefits. Participatory economics is actually the classless, self-managing, equitable, anarchist alternative to wage slavery and market exchange. Just as I think participatory economics fulfills the best aims of socialism, so too I think participatory economics fulfills the still more encompassing best aims of anarchism. Suppose anarchists were to agree on this. Would using the, a new name remain important to add clarity that there is something new proposed? I think maybe it would. I interject. The above query has come in different shapes, sizes, and form in exchanges with, of course, anarchists, including, again, Chomsky. Question 8. What makes you think participatory economics is so desirable? And why should we believe it would actually work as you claim? What should people do about it when they hear about this vision? The key institutions of participatory economics are designed so there is no capitalist class and no coordinator class. There are only workers and consumers who each do their own special labors, each excel in their own unique ways, and each enjoy the same equitable opportunities and broad conditions. I look at the system's features, and I see that each actor, to get ahead, has to behave in ways consistent with the well-being of others, rather than seeking to trample others' well-being. To earn more, each actor must work socially usefully longer, harder, or at more onerous labors. Each job is, improves as the average balanced job complex improves. Outcomes abide the wills of the whole populace, rather than only the wills of elite sectors. Each actor in workplaces and in consumer units has appropriate influence over each decision from the smallest personal choices to the largest collective projects. Valuations reflect full, personal, social, and ecological costs and benefits. So I advocate participatory economics not as nirvana, not as the end of history, not even thinking it will do what it aims to do without the need for continual improvement. Rather, I advocate it as an approach to economic production, consumption, and allocation that will foster sentiments, aspirations, choices, behaviors, and outcomes consistent with the best human potentials I can imagine achieving in the next stage of economic history. But as to your believing any of that, well, you certainly shouldn't believe such claims just on my say-so, or just on anyone else's say-so, or even just because it would be very nice if the claims were true. To become a reasoned advocate, you would need to look at the descriptions and arguments in some detail, and assess them in light of evidence offered and your own experiences. The participatory economic vision is not trivial, but nor is it unattainably complex. Understanding participatory economics doesn't require massive training. 
If the participatory economic vision is presented in plain and clear language, anyone interested in comprehending and assessing its core properties should, with some effort, be able to do so. Participatory economics is, however, outside the box. It is not outside our reach. I interject. Okay, I cheated. I don't remember literally being asked for the above, but I think I should have been. And while writing this chapter of No Bosses, I realized it would be nice if it could stand alone, and for that aim, this last answer helps. Question 9. Do advocates of participatory economics have disagreements about it? Yes, of at least three sorts. Stylistic, tactical, and perhaps even basic. Stylistically, some advocates write and talk differently than others. No big deal. We all agree we should seek utmost clarity. Tactically, some advocates feel that in our current context, to reach some particular audience or to highlight some particular aspect is especially important, where other advocates prioritize communicating to different audiences or about different aspects. For example, advocates sometimes differ about whether trying to reach left activists or to reach professional economists is more important. Or, some advocates, in the view of other advocates, excessively overemphasize the importance of balanced job complexes, or in the eyes of others, some advocates excessively overemphasize the speed and ease of planning. Regrettably, avenues for reaching the broad public are not yet within reach, at least that I know of, and I am sure all advocates would welcome that chance. As to more substantive differences, I can think of two that may exist, and perhaps a third. First, there may be differences over how detailed is too detailed. Some think we can reasonably assert more now. Some think more can only be determined later by those implementing a participatory economy. This type of difference particularly involves participatory planning, but may also arise for other facets. Second, differences may exist regarding the value of facilitating interactions among workers and consumers, or at least regarding workers and consumers each having access to knowledge of circumstances beyond their own counsels during planning. Informing that, there may be differences over the importance of streamlining planning procedures to reduce time spent as compared to the importance of enriching planning procedures to increase solidarity. Third, there may be a difference not only in emphasis on using efficiency as a guide, including worries about how doing so could interfere with features of participatory planning, but perhaps also differences over what is and what isn't efficient. But however real any such disagreements may be, none of them present a serious problem for the participatory economic proposal itself, for the obvious reason that all of its advocates agree that even accepted and enacted, the proposal would surely be refined and implemented in diverse ways that we can't now foresee, not only to fit different conditions and situations, but also to comply with lessons learned in coming years that extend beyond what anyone now thinks. In any case, differences may clear the need for further deliberations, and further deliberations can only be a good thing. I interject. I cheated again. I don't think anyone has ever asked me about differences among advocates. I just think a good many people should have. Question 10. You have advocated participatory economics, sometimes called participatory socialism, for decades. I get that you think it retains merit, but no matter how valid, to have impact any proposal needs advocates. Why isn't the vision better known? Why aren't there more advocates? In their absence, why don't you seek a new project to pursue? 
These are fair and troubling questions, and I wish I could provide fully satisfying answers. I can't. I can only try to say something that might be useful. I do pursue various projects, of course, and all participatory economies advocates do. But setting that aside, given that the participatory economic vision hasn't yet attracted wise support, I think your question is, why don't I and other advocates jettison participatory economics as a priority? You were too kind to add. The reason participatory economics hasn't won more support could be that participatory economics is nonsense, so there is no point spending any valuable time trying to evaluate its merits and debits, much less to advocate it. I think the system's published critics, which is actually only a very few people, would probably say yes to your question. That is indeed participatory economics, not worth the time. And to me they might say, geez, Michael, let it go already. But such critics have not convinced me, nor, I suspect, any of the visions admittedly still far too few serious advocates in the United States, Scotland, Ireland, England, Sweden, Finland, Italy, France, Turkey, Brazil, Venezuela, India, South Africa, Australia, Japan, and elsewhere. Why not? Participatory economics advances a few relatively straightforward ideas. Advocates believe those ideas make undeniable moral sense. No critic who I know of has denied that. The basic ideas also seem, to the vision's advocates, to operationally hold together. They seem to be not only morally worthy, but also pragmatically viable. If they are instead ridiculous, as your question gently implies, it should be simple for critics to demonstrate their flaws. However, what criticisms have been offered often quite aggressively, and sometimes by very well-informed, creative, and even brilliant people, haven't seemed to me to even bruise the vision, much less dent it, much less bury it. Instead, critics have seemed to me to misstate the vision's features, and then to summarily reject what they misstate. Or even less effectively, they don't even point to a non-existent feature to reject. They simply reject by fiat. I and others have invited critique, given critique visibility, and tried to find critique compelling, in which case we would be quite prepared to say, in line with this question's expectations, okay, we get it, we have had enough, the vision was a good try, but what else can we come up with? But instead, as far as I can tell, so far criticism that has been offered has been rather easily answered. The participatory economic vision has just five core components a commons of productive assets, workers and consumers self-managing councils, balanced job complexes, equitable remuneration, and participatory planning. A compelling argument against this vision would demonstrate that attaining it would be unjust or would have disastrous side effects, or would demonstrate that what participatory economics claims to do would be nice, but it can't be done, or would demonstrate that once attained, the vision wouldn't hold together, people couldn't or wouldn't behave as it entails, or would demonstrate that drastic negative side effects would offset modest benefits. At any rate, something like that. And such claims have certainly at times been raised by the few critics who have tried to seriously address participatory economics. So some critics have claimed that participatory economics would promote self-management but would simultaneously incur widespread dumb decisions due to participation from weak decision-makers. Or critics have claimed participatory economics would be a just but unproductive economy because it would have flawed incentives. 
Or, critics have claimed, participatory economics would remove the basis for class division, but at the same time, and for that very reason, would demolish quality and reduce output, because it would require too many people to do what they cannot do well, or even do it all, and it would simultaneously underutilize the people able to do those things well. Or, critics have claimed participatory economics would have participation, but would, as a result, incur too many conflicting agendas and waste too much time deciding among economic outcomes. You can, and I hope you will, look for yourself at the debates and responses regarding all these claims, both the rebuttals that appear in this short book, No Bosses, and the longer treatments that are also available. For me, the concerns are real and fair, but once examined, they melt into nothing. And indeed, the criticisms were all anticipated in even our very first book-length presentations. And our reasons for finding the criticisms uncompelling were offered even before the criticisms were ever raised by others. And then the anticipated criticisms were raised as anticipated. And then we advocates offered rebuttals. And then the predicted criticisms were re-raised with no response to the rebuttals over and over. Speaking for myself, from the start, I thought there would be at least some areas that advocates weren't aware of that would need serious and perhaps even fundamental corrections, and not just modest tweaking. I expected those areas to be surfaced by critics who would show how our replies to their anticipated criticisms were wanting, but that didn't happen. More, the aspects that we knew at the outset were as yet insufficiently developed, such as clarifying ways to fully incorporate externalities in planning and clarifying how to best plan investment, weren't even called out by others. What we most often heard was instead threadbare old sores. Participation will take too long. People are too greedy. Participation will take too long. People are too dumb. Participation will take too long. People are too lazy. And oh yes, participation will take too long. I think the reason criticism has been weak was that on the one hand, the participatory economic vision didn't overstep into unknowable details. And on the other hand, its features are fairly simple and quite carefully conceived. So it just hasn't had overly serious problems. Or maybe it is just that people have yet to seriously assess it and discover its problems. Certainly only a few have tried. I interject. Hmm. I notice now that the above answer ignored part of the question. Why not more advocates? I can't remember whether I take that up in questions to come. If not, I will do so before signing off for today. Question 11. How about instead the possibility that you and other advocates of participatory economics haven't given up because you have been too wedded to it, too vested in it, to hear, much less to accept, the criticisms that others point out? Have you been too enmeshed to see how blinded you are? That isn't for me to judge, but I will say that I don't think so. I think we have instead avidly and seriously welcomed, heard, and addressed criticisms. But what if the other side of the possibility that we advocates are too wedded, too vested, is, well, what if the vision is in fact sound? What if classlessness, equity, and self-management, as well as productive creativity, in the sense of meeting material, social, and ecological needs and developing human potentials without undue waste would all be incredibly enhanced by the vision's proposed features. If I think that is true, 
Don't I have to wonder, by this time, why aren't council self-management, balanced job complexes, equitable remuneration, and participatory planning widely advocated, or at the very least, widely considered? What obstacles, other than their being ill-conceived, might have impeded wider discussion, much less acceptance? Have you wondered about that? Have you wondered, for example, whether critics of participatory economics have been too wedded to it being wrong, too vested in it being wrong, for them to even hear advocates' responses to their concerns, much less to accept the responses that advocates offer? I interject. Well, the question is good, but again, rarely asked, and I started to get at the too few advocates issue. Question 12. I'm not convinced. If participatory economics would efficiently and equitably fulfill economic functions of production, consumption, and allocation, and would simultaneously take into account ecological, social, and personal effects, and if it would even convey collective participatory self-management and create classlessness, then why isn't it a widely shared vision for life after capitalism? Again, it's a fair question. One central reason has nothing much to do with participatory vision per se. That is, there are no serious institutional visions for life after capitalism that are widely shared on the left, especially in the U.S. Disinterest in all vision, not just this one, is thus an obvious factor. One explanation of why that disinterest is so prevalent might be that people doubt the possibility of anything better, so doubt the value of thinking about vision at all. A second factor in why the participatory vision in particular isn't widely advocated is that its features aren't widely known. The proposal has been around 40 years, yes, but it is not discussed much in left media, much less in the mainstream. So it is not so much that people have carefully assessed it and have not gotten on board. It is more that people aren't even aware it exists as a visionary option, much less aware of its features. I interject. Okay, I can now see that I was cheating in the chapter. To allow not overly long answers, I broke the overarching question into parts. Question 13. Okay, those factors of course exist. I have to agree. But still, a lot more leftists have heard of it than openly advocated. So there has to be more to their reticence than not hearing of it. I agree. There must be. And that does present a problem for advocates. But think of a left activist who is incredibly busy and committed. He or she reads some left literature, journals, magazines, and websites, and never encounters serious mention of, debate about, or interest in participatory economics, or any other seriously elaborated economic or social vision. Absent that sort of indication that participatory economics, or any other vision, has some traction, he or she wonders, why give it any of my all-too-scarce time? Why pay attention? The activist perhaps thinks, I have things to do, now, so later for this vision, later for all vision. The activist hasn't assessed participatory economics, or any vision, understood it, and decided it is unworthy. She or he has so many things to do that vision doesn't appear worth the time to assess. Economic or other vision isn't directly on the urgent agenda of the activist's next meeting or next event. As to longer-term importance, it is understandable for someone who does happen to hear of it to think, if no one in the venues I pay attention to seems to care about it, why should I? Question 14. Okay, the critic replies, but even in that case, why isn't participatory economics addressed in left media? 
and one of the few people who have heard about it in some detail, but who haven't taken it seriously. Well, okay, you're pushing me to the wall. Let me push back just a little. Do you wonder if any of participatory economy's critics, or those who just pass over participatory economics with a dismissive nod and no serious notice, ever consider the possibility that their dismissiveness owes to an implicit or explicit allegiance to wide income differentials between coordinator class and working class actors, or owes to their implicit or explicit allegiance to the idea that coordinator class members have innately superior decision-making wisdom and innately greater creativity for doing empowering tasks, or owes to their implicit or explicit belief that markets are forever, or even just owes to their not wanting to buck up against all those views? And as to the media, the same questions arise. Do you wonder if few articles addressing participatory economics or reviews of books about it appear because such submissions are written but get rejected due to implicit or even rather explicit coordinator class interests, and especially due to unexamined coordinator class habits, just as for a long time, and to a degree even still, serious content about race and gender has been rejected on grounds of white and male interest and especially habit. No doubt, many variables impact the low interest in, discussion of, debate about, elaborations on, and then acceptance or rejections of, not just participatory economic vision, but also other visions for the economy, and even more so for polity, kinship, and or culture. But what about now? Has reading this book provided a clear view of participatory economics? Is that view such that you find the proposal eminently dismissible? If so, okay. Perhaps you will send your views our way. Maybe we can do better. But if you don't find it eminently dismissible, are you motivated to pay additional attention to the participatory economic proposal and to debates about it? If you aren't, is it because you think having an economic vision is not worth the time? Or is it because you have another vision which you think is better? Or is it because there is something you have heard about participatory economics that repels you? And don't these same questions arise for proposed vision regarding political, kinship, and cultural institutions, which are arguably even less discussed than participatory or other economic proposals? Isn't what we want for a better future as important to address as what we reject about our current situations? Don't we need to sufficiently know what we want to be able to plant its seeds in the present, to be able to point our actions toward it, to be able to avoid being sidetracked, to be able to be positive, and to generate hope and desire? If all that is true, why does addressing what we reject outweigh addressing what we want a hundred or even a thousand to one? Could it be that the dearth of attention to vision, even among committed radical activists, has to do, at least in part, with people deep down not really believing we can win and seeing no point in getting vested in something we can't ever attain? If so, then that is, or ought to be, a priority to discuss. Question 15. Okay, suppose I think it over and conclude that a participatory economy would work. What difference would that make? We can't win a whole new economy anytime soon. So what difference does it make if we advocate a vision for a whole new economy now? Is this all just an intellectual exercise? For many people, hope and allegiance depend on vision. Our activist choices need to not only oppose what is, but to also build the consciousness, commitment, and infrastructure of what we hope to attain. 
in that light. Supporting participatory economics has many implications for how to talk about current injustices and describe what we favor, as well as for how to organize ourselves to win immediate gains that we seek. For example, with participatory economics as a shared economic vision, there would no longer be arguments about consensus versus majority rule. Rather, leftists would see self-management as the guiding principle for decision-making and realize that different methods of communication of information and of tallying support are just tools for attaining self-management and that we should use different tools in different situations. Participatory economics as a shared goal would likely also point us toward demands and processes that increase participation and transparency and allocation. It would push toward reforms like participatory budgeting and communal exchange that would improve lives now but also move toward participatory planning. Participatory economics would likely also push us toward income demands that move toward remunerating for effort and sacrifice. More, it would influence how we talk about income and would seek to arouse desires for gains beyond immediate demands and likewise for other campaigns. It would likely propel us toward building worker and consumer councils to pursue and implement diverse agendas. It would likely cause us to reconceive the ways we organize our own institutions and campaigns so that in time we would no more tolerate movement organizations that embody corporate divisions of labor and market-oriented norms than we would tolerate movement organizations that embody sexist or racist norms. Our organizations would likely move toward remuneration for effort and sacrifice, not for relative power, credentials, or productivity. And our organizations would move toward self-managed decision-making and, in particular, toward jobs balance for empowerment effects rather than retaining the division of labor typically found in corporations. Indeed, we would understand the importance of the interface between the coordinator class and owners above them, and even more so, the interface between the coordinator class and workers below them. This would in turn inform how we talk, what we demand, and how we organize ourselves. We would admire and pursue excellence and expertise, but we would not reward excellence and expertise with undue material wealth or social power. Nor would we mistake mystification for expertise. We would want current coordinator class members to support and seek participatory economics, but we would not prioritize attracting coordinator class members above attracting working class members. There must be some way out of here, said the organizer to the activist, but it is very important that the way we choose doesn't lead us in a circle back to where we started or take us to a new system that is still a dungeon. Having vision matters for where we wind up. Having vision matters for winning a new economy for a better world. Participatory economics is a proposed vision for one part of life. It is neither more nor less than that. That was it for the Q&A chapter. But there is then a section of selected references, so why not offer those here too? However, it is just one title after another. You may not want to listen to that. On the other hand, you may want to. Again, it started with two quotations. First, it had Steve Biko from South Africa saying, The most potent weapon in the hands of the oppressor is the mind of the oppressed. And then it had G.D.H. Cole saying, Woe betide those who seek to save themselves the pain of mental building by inhabiting dead men's minds. The first set of references were under the label predecessors, with a line of clarification, which went like this. 
a selection of works that preceded participatory economics, but contributed, in hindsight, more than many other works. So these books were Anton Panikok, Workers' Councils, Chowling Koopman's Three Essays on the State of Economic Science, Andre Gore's Strategy for Labor, Herbert Marcuse, One-Dimensional Man, Daniel Cohn-Bendit, Obsolete Communism, A Left-Wing Alternative, Herbert Marcuse, An Essay on Liberation, Murray Bookchin, Post-Scarcity Anarchism, Peter Kropotkin, Revolutionary Essays, Noam Chomsky, Government in the Future, Daniel Guerin, Anarchism, Maurice Brinton, The Bolsheviks and Workers' Control, Maurice Brinton, For Workers' Power, Bertrand Russell, Roads to Freedom, Shulamith Fireson, Dialectics of Sex, Juliet Mitchell, Women's Estate, Bertolt Ullman, Alienation, Cornelius Castoriadis, Workers' Councils and a Self-Managed Society, Rudolf Rocker, Anarcho-Syndicalism, Peter Kropotkin, Mutual Aid, Wilhelm Reich, Sex Paul, Senate and Cobb, The Hidden Injuries of Class, Howard and Clare, The Unknown Dimension, Stanley Aronowitz, False Promises, Ursula Le Guin, The Dispossessed, Stephen Marglin, What Do Bosses Do, Simone de Beauvoir, The Second Sex, Carl Boggs, Gramsci's Marxism, Jeremy Brecker, Strike, Nancy Chodoro, The Reproduction of Mothering, Mary Bookchin, Remaking Society. The next batch were listed under the heading Origins, with the clarification that they are a selection of works that preceded but foreshadowed and began to develop ideas key to participatory economics. Michael Albert, What is to be Undone? Albert and Hanel, Unorthodox Marxism. Patrick Walker, Between Labor and Capital. Barbara and John Ehrenreich, The Professional Managerial Class, In Between Labor and Capital. Albert and Hanel, More Locations on the Class Map, In Between Labor and Capital. Albert and Hanel, Socialism Today and Tomorrow. Albert and Hanel, Marxism and Socialist Theory. Stephen Shalom, Socialist Visions. Albert, Kagan, Chomsky, Hanel, King, Sargent, Sklar, Liberating Theory. Hanel and Albert, Quiet Revolution and Welfare Economics. And next came Presentations, Elaborations, Parallel Efforts. Albert and Hanel, Looking Forward. Albert and Hanel, Political Economy of Participatory Economics. Roy Morrison, Ecological Democracy. Michael Albert, Thinking Forward. Bookchin and Beale, The Politics of Social Ecology. Michael Albert, Moving Forward, Jeff Schmidt, Disciplined Minds, Seymour Melman, After Capitalism, Michael Albert, Trajectory of Change, Michael Albert, Paracon Life After Capitalism, Michael Albert, Thought Dreams, Robin Hanel, Economic Justice and Democracy, Garl Perovitz, America Beyond Capitalism, Michael Albert, Realizing Hope, Michael Albert, Remembering Tomorrow, Chris Spanos, Real Utopia, Steve Shalom, Parapolity, In Real Utopia, Cynthia Peters, Kinship, In Real Utopia, Justin Podor, Polyculturalism, In Real Utopia, Michael Leibowitz, The Contradiction of Socialism, Robin Hanel, Of the People, By the People, Wilson and Thompson, Parry Comic, Robin Hanel, Economic Justice and Democracy, Robin Hanel, The ABCs of Political Economy, Michael Leibowitz, The Socialist Imperative, Michael Albert, Practical Utopia, Michael Albert, RPS 2044, An Oral History of the Next American Revolution. 
Anders Sandstrom, Anarchist Accounting, Robin Hanel, Democratic Economic Planning, and finally, Michael Albert, No Bosses, A New Economy for a Better World, the source of the recent set of Revolution Z episodes. And so, until next time, this is Michael Albert, signing off for Revolution Z.